Well, good morning. We're glad that you're with us. And if you'd so kindly open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And this morning we'll continue our series entitled The Kingdom of Heaven. As we continue considering the kingdom of heaven, we do so to remind ourselves of a New Testament truth that you and I who are followers of Jesus Christ are truly citizens of heaven. And now more than ever, I think we all need to be reminded of that fact. For we don't know what will take place in the next couple of days. But whatever happens, our citizenship in heaven is not at stake. That will never change. Because man cannot destroy what God has accomplished. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is an idea that I think is somewhat lost in American Christianity. It's the understanding that we are individually subjected to a king's authority. That he is our new Lord. And that you and I, as his followers, who have not been bought with silver and gold, but by uh, the precious blood of Jesus Christ, are now indebted to the one who bought us, to the one in whom we serve. And so this morning, let us begin by discovering the kingdom of heaven as Jesus revealed it to us in the greatest sermon ever given, the Sermon on the Mount. And let us begin in verse 1, and let's read our text together. In chapter 5, verse 1 of Matthew's Gospel, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, When they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. From the very moment that John the Baptist stepped onto the scene, he began to declare the coming of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. He began to prepare the Jewish people by calling them back to repentance, asking them once again to turn from their their ways and put their focus and attention back on the God in whom 
gave them the land in which they occupied, who delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians, that brought them out of nothing through, through the man Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But in it all, John the Baptist was preparing the nation of Israel for the kingdom of heaven. In fact, then when Jesus succeeded him, the first thing Jesus said was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now we begin in Matthew's gospel to define that kingdom. What we can expect from it. What it will look like. And what are, we can expect as individuals as we participate and are, are a citizen of it. The section that we read this morning is called the Beatitudes. It is a word derived from a Latin word, which means blessings. These blessings are the introduction to what some have called the constitution of the kingdom. The expectations that individuals can anticipate in living in close proximity with Yahweh. As one wrote, he says, Here is the manifesto of the new monarch who ushers in a new age with a new message. Now, for us to truly comprehend and appreciate what Jesus is saying here in these first 12 verses, we need to take a step back. And that is, we need to understand the mindset of the people in whom he is speaking to at this time. Let us notice in verse 1 and 2, we are given a little bit of the background, and we are also introduced to those in whom he is addressing. Now, I want to tell you that this week was somewhat interesting for me because the commentators and scholars that I refer to in my preparation for teaching spent an awful long time on these first two verses to truly identify the audience in whom Jesus was speaking to. And there are three general opinions. Number one, he was speaking to the crowds. The crowds that were following him from chapter 4, verse 25. Others believe that this was a personal, intimate conversation between him and the disciples. And number three... Some believe that it is a combination of both. Now, what's interesting to me is that scholars took 50-some pages to come to that conclusion. <laughs> you know, they, they always, they're, they're so wordy. It's just like, let's get to it, you know. Let's, where is the cliff notes here for this little portion of the study? I believe that it is the latter that is the, pro, the most probable in context of what we have been given in our text. That as he saw the people pressing in upon him, like Jesus in other occasions when he stepped out into a boat and asked to be pushed off the shore just a short distance, that he may address the totality of the people in whom were surrounding him, I believe Jesus did the same thing by going up the side of a mountain. Now the word mountain here in the Greek can be anything from a mountain like we would consider the Rocky Mountains or the Smoky Mountains to a bump. <laughs> and so it most likely occurred that he just went up a short period of distance and that he 
had the disciples come near him, and even that here in our text is a generic term, it doesn't necessarily mean or indicate just the twelve. It can be anyone who is following Jesus. But I believe that he placed himself in a position that all could hear him. But the one commonality amongst all of this, all three of these different perspectives, is this, that they were all Jewish. And they were all listening intently because they heard the announcement of the kingdom of God is at hand. From John the Baptist and from Jesus. And now Jesus is about to give information. He's about to share with the people what they can expect and what the kingdom of God is going to look like so you can imagine that they are listening with great intent and anticipation. But let us also understand the confusion, the theological confusion at this time. Throughout the Old Testament, there are various passages related to the kingdom of God coming through the establishment and the coming of the Messiah. And those passages have been distorted, and you really see this when you get into the Talmud and the Mishnah, which are the commentaries of the Jewish people on the Old Testament text. There is such confusion that a true profile or picture or really couldn't be developed by their understanding or interpretations of the Old Testament passages. In fact, it was so distorted that some actually believed that there was going to be two messiahs because one came and he suffered greatly and the other came and he was quite victorious, never considering that it could be the same messiah coming one time and then coming back a second time. But the details concerning the kingdom of God were also skewed greatly. And so Jesus realizes this confusion. He's, of course, very aware of it, and I can prove that as we go on, when he states over and over and over again, you have heard this, but this is what I say. And we'll talk about that more once we get there. The second thing that we need to understand is the concept of blessedness. The concept of blessedness we have a tendency to define that one way through our eyes, our perspective, our understanding here in 2020. But truly, to understand what Jesus is saying here, we need to go back and understand it as they understood it. Under the Mosaic Covenant, God told His people that if you obey Me, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, all of these blessings will come upon you. If you disobey me, Deuteronomy chapter 29, all of these curses will come upon the nation of Israel. Now one caveat to that is that by the time that Jesus came, individuals were applying this personally rather than collectively. And this is the confusion that I referenced last week concerning the rich young ruler. So the very first thing that Jesus does in introducing the kingdom of heaven is to demonstrate who is blessed within the kingdom of heaven. Who has a proper standing within the kingdom of heaven? Because obviously, those who were blessed under the covenant of Moses, if they were being blessed, if the nation was being blessed, then they had a favorable standing with God. But now it changes. 
where Jesus now begins to individualize it and personalize it. What they couldn't do with the covenant that was given to Moses, Jesus now does in establishing their understanding of the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know about you, but after studying the Bible for 35 years, I've discovered that often when we come to the Beatitudes, the very first thing that we are told is that the word blessed here means happy. Happy is the person. That's partially true. But understand that the word blessed there means blessed of God and therefore are happy. And why are they blessed and happy? Well, it's not due to the fact, number one, that they're poor in spirit, number two, that they mourn, number three, that they are meek, number four, that they are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. That's not where the blessing is derived from. The blessing is derived from the second portion of what Jesus says. They are blessed and happy because for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are blessed and happy for they shall be comforted. They are blessed and happy for they shall inherit the earth. Do you understand the point that I'm getting at? This is why God can say to these individuals that you are blessed and therefore happy because of the fact of what God is going to do on your behalf. Now this changes the dynamic a little bit when we read through these things. Because now, instead of following the edicts of the covenant of Moses, they're discovering that what is going to lead to these blessings are characteristics much different than those found in the covenant of Moses. However, they are found in the Old Testament. There's nothing in the Sermon of the Mount that really can't be rooted back into the Old Testament. And so for this morning, let us take a look at this incredible statement that Jesus is making. Because I believe that it is timeless. It is as important to you and I today as it was the moment that Jesus spoke these words. And again, I believe, as we begin here in verse 1, the multitudes that he saw, he went up on a mountain, we don't know how high, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. That was a common practice. When the teacher, the rabbi, would sit, his immediate disciples would come to him anticipating some type of verbal lesson. In that culture, as we have said, the teachers sat And the students stood. I've been advocating for that for 25 years. I still haven't gotten it. So it isn't uncommon that when he went up a short way and he sat down, that his immediate disciples would gather around him. That would be the common thing for them to do. But it doesn't mean that the multitudes are out of the hearing of what Jesus is about to say. And then he opened his mouth and taught them. And I think there's at least 10 pages devoted to the application of the word them. And then he begins. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Immediately their minds would hearken back to the Mosaic Covenant. Determining and understanding that the blessedness of God was conditional to their obedience to God. Now he is indicating that a 
spiritual condition before God can lead to the blessing of God. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? The word poor there is again very misleading and several of the English words of the Beatitudes are misleading. But it means to have absolutely nothing. It doesn't necessarily mean material or money. It means to have nothing and a a result of that having nothing, the individual is discouraged and faint at heart. And I believe that the Jewish commentators are correct when they say that what Jesus is referring to here is the individual that understands that their personal position before God is that they have truly nothing to offer Him. That they have nothing that they can offer Him. And this will contradict and contrast what I believe is a major portion of the Sermon on the Mount, and that is dispelling the illusion of the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. The Pharisees constantly believed that they always had something to offer. That God chose them because of who they are and what they could do and what they had to offer. But Jesus says, the person who comes to me who realizes that they have nothing to offer and are humbled about it, those are the people, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We see this in Isaiah. Isaiah 35, 4. Say to those who are faint-hearted, be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. Isaiah went on to say in Isaiah 66, 2, For all those things my hands has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look, on him who is poor and has a contrite spirit, and who trembles before my word. Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who realize that they have nothing to offer God. In and of themselves, they are bankrupt spiritually. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, he then goes on to say, for they shall be comforted. The word mourn that he uses there is a very specific Greek word. It is used of one who is mourning in such sadness and sorrow because they have lost something that they've loved so dearly. In fact, we see this word used when it comes to the mourning of the husband and wife who, lo- who loses the young girl, who summon Jesus. Jesus then comes and he is then told by others, uh, it's too late, she has died. And Jesus says, no, 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 she hasn't died, she's just sleeping. And of course, he brings a small group of people in the room with him and raises that little girl back to life. The mourning here that they are speaking of is the loss of something truly loved and that only God can revive. 
There were those undoubtedly in the crowds that once again wanted to see Israel at their zenith and knew in their heart that they are now reaping what they have sown by turning their backs on their God and now mourning over that condition that they find their nation in. But Jesus says, Blessed are you who mourn, for you shall be comforted. In verse 5, he continues and he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is another interesting word used. This meekness describes the individual coming to the Lord for a specific purpose. The word is also used later on in Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. I'd like to read these verses to you if I may. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have not hidden, I'm sorry, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes, or your newer translations may say infants. And that confuses a lot of people because, again, we're reading it in a Western culture mindset. But in Judaism, okay, infants were seen as individuals who had no say within the society, who had no voice, who the society did not benefit from in the sense of their contributions to the society. As one individual described these people, He said, these would indicate those who are of no account in the world's opinion. And Jesus says, I thank you that you have revealed who I am to these people. Because in and through them, he would receive all of the glory for what he has done and going to do. But then Jesus goes on to say, even so, Father, for so it seems good in your sight, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and and the one whom the Son wills to reveal him. He says, now come to me, all you labor and are under heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The scholar Leon Morris believes that Jesus spoke those words, and I agree with him, as he was sitting in the temple courtyard during the time in which animals were brought to be slaughtered unto the Lord as an offering to temporarily cover, or the Hebrew word kofar, the sins of the individual in whom that animal sacrifice was being offered on behalf. And as Jesus sat there and taught, seeing these individuals waiting in line, sometimes for hours, with the lamb around their neck, it would indicate that the burden in which that they were subjected to was the covenant's requirement for the covering of sins. 
And Jesus sitting there as he is speaking and as he is teaching says, now come to me and I will give you rest. What you could not obtain in the covenant of Moses, I am now freely going to give you through the covenant that I'm going to establish in and through my own blood, through his death and through his resurrection. The meekness that is spoken of here is a individual such as that one that infant that is uh, spoken about later in Matthew's gospel, it means the one that the world absolutely considers irrelevant. And yet Jesus says, for those that the world deems irrelevant, they shall inherit the earth. As Jesus then went on, He then said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled or satisfied. And it's to the emphatic, so it's filled, satisfied, to overflowing. When we talk about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, we often confine it to the personal life of the individual. But the concept and the scope of the application of what Jesus is saying here is that not only does the individual see his own personal need or her own personal need for righteousness, but also the unrighteousness in which they live in contributing to the corruption and the unrighteousness of the society around them. Now, let us understand Either we're going to impact our society, our culture, and those people around us positively for the gospel of Jesus Christ, or we're going to impact them negatively. The scope of the understanding here was that these individuals thirsting and hungering for the righteousness was not only hungering for their own righteousness that they could not obtain in the Mosaic Law, but also seeing the devastation of the corruption and the unrighteousness upon the entire society. It's like us looking around in our world today and realizing that the unrighteousness that we have sown over decades and decades and decades of living apart from God is now catching up to us. And we are currently reaping those things that we have sown, aren't we? But Jesus is referring to those who individually understand their need for righteousness, and their inability to obtain it in and of themselves. Concerning the culture, Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3.13, Nevertheless, we, according to the promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And we talked about that in our study of eschatology. But the psalmist wrote in Psalm 63, 1 and 2, he says, O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. And in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in your sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Let us understand that what's happening in the nation around us today didn't happen overnight. Oh, it seemed to happen quickly, didn't it? And some would even say, oh, it blindsided me. I didn't see it coming. But for years, we have been pushing God out of our society 
every aspect of our public existence. We've been indicating over and over and over again that we were superior to Him and we are in no longer any need for Him and we've been pushing Him further and further out of our society, out of our schools, out of our sciences, out of our educa- higher education, out of our politics, etc. And now we are simply reaping what we have sown. And those writers of our Constitution knew that. They knew if the populace ever abandoned their Christian faith, the Constitution in which had been construction would be of no use. But the individual who sees this, corruption around them, and their contribution to that corruption, Jesus says to them, those who desire for righteousness, wouldn't you like to see the corruption done away with once and for all? Wouldn't you like to be able to turn on the news and trust what you're being told? Read the paper and say, oh, okay, now I know where things are at. Now I can make an educated decision on what I should do next. But we don't know who to believe anymore or what to believe anymore. And we have a thousand voices yelling at us constantly, trying to pull us one way or another, further dividing our nation, dividing our culture, and losing all semblance of unity. He then says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. From the very beginning of the conception of Israel, it was God's desire that Israel be a light unto the world. And He desired Israel to react as he would react to those around him, around them, excuse me. However, though, Israel, in many cases, this and the next couple of these Beatitudes, never fulfilled that. But he is saying here that those who show mercy, specifically mercy to one that has personally wronged them, they themselves should also obtain mercy. A character of God, when he, the Hebrew writer states in Hebrews 8.12, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Or when Jesus later speaks of forgiveness in this sermon itself, he states in Matthew 6.14 and 15, But if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. He says, one wrote, I'm commenting on this, he says, mercy embraces both forgiveness for the guilty and compassion for those who are suffering and needy. Those who desired to live as God would want them to live and showing mercy to those who have wronged them, God says, for you shall find mercy yourself and will be happy and blessed for it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The religious Pharisees at the time that the Gospels were written and during the time that Jesus lived were the standard for Judaism. Not only what they taught, 
but also through the manner in which they lived. And by the time that Jesus came, the, the corruption was so acute amongst the religious leaders of Israel that all righteousness, goodness, kindness was so distorted that individuals didn't know how to live for God in a proper manner. The hypocrisy of the religious leaders were, was known throughout Jerusalem. There are fascinating things written by historians between the relationship of the people of that time and also the religious leaders of that time. And there was a real divide. The hypocrisy was almost anticipated. You know, uh, they came up with that joke, you know, how do you know when a Pharisee's lying and their lips are moving, you know? It was just a given that the Pharisees couldn't be trusted because of their hypocrisy. Though on the outside they looked incredibly pious and they looked righteous and they would act in an overtly righteous way, bringing constant attention onto their self-righteousness. But then Jesus said, those who follow me in the kingdom of heaven, those who are pure at heart. What did he mean by that? It means this. Not only those who appear clean on the outside, but more importantly, are clean on the inside. Notice what Jesus said in Luke eleven thirty-seven through 41. Luke eleven thirty-seven to 41. And as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he did not first wash before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward parts is full of greed and wickedness. How'd you like that? Jesus did not learn to become politically correct at any point in his earthly ministry. He says, foolish ones. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But rather give alms of such things as you have. Then indeed all things are clean to you. And what he's saying there is this. That God is not interested at outward conformity, but inward transformation. Transformity. There's another word for the English Eric English Dictionary coming out next year. Reserve your copy now for Christmas on Amazon. I make up words as we go. Anybody can conform, but only through God can an individual transform. And what he is indicating here are those people who are truly desiring and seeking to live for the Lord Purely, purely in the sense of whole or in a totality, inside and out. For they shall see God. As Jesus went on to speak, he said this. When it comes, I should say commenting on this, when we talk about pure, it has two interrelated meanings. Number one, it means an inner moral purity as opposed to merely an external piety. But it also means a single-mindedness, a heart 
free from deceit. Jesus was preparing for what he was about to say later in his sermon. Because the standard of righteousness for Israel was the standard in which was portrayed to them by the religious leaders. And let us notice, if you will, verse 20. Look in your text, chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus says this, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter what? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. We don't understand the repercussions of this statement. Jesus was calling out their hypocrisy before the public. He was letting them know, the public that is, that the standard of righteousness displayed by the religious leaders could not be trusted for the purpose of salvation or entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Often in the Bible, you will come across passages that as you read them, you wonder if the writer had written that statement, that sentence, or that passage in anticipation of a question asked or contemplated by those who were listening either A, to his teaching, or B, to, his, to his, the reading of the letter in which he wrote. And I believe that as soon as the kingdom of heaven started becoming proclaimed by John and then Jesus, the question that began to swell in the hearts and the minds of the people is, Am I eligible? Will I enter in to the kingdom of heaven? Now, of course, when Jesus set this benchmark in verse 20, he is not saying or in a, at, at all uh, supporting the idea that an individual in and of themselves can gain such righteousness, but demonstrating for the people their personal need for a savior. Does that make sense? What they couldn't do, God was going to do on their behalf. Just wanted to be clear from the beginning. In verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Again, Israel, from the very beginning, was meant to be the nation in which God would use as a light unto the dark world. As a point, as a beacon of reconciliation between those who were lost and the God in whom they were estranged from. But never did Israel realize this uh, task, meaning it never came to fruition. They always fell short of it. In fact, we know that by the time Jesus came, Gentiles were despised by the Jewish people. But again, he is saying to those, and the word peacemaker there isn't just simply one who seeks to keep the peace. It isn't one who seeks to keep the peace by any means such as appeasement. As Secretary of State, or maybe it was Bobby Kennedy in the Kennedy administration, him or Dean Rusk said, appeasing, I'm sorry, to appease an aggressor only makes the aggressor more aggressive. We're not talking about that type of peacekeeping. We're talking about a reconciliation. 
That is the peace that he is talking about here. For example, if you have a marriage that becomes estranged, they separate and they divorce. And after the divorce, they hate one another. If I came and simply helped them to become friends again, that would not fulfill the text here. But if I help them to fall in love again and then reconcile their marriage, that would indicate the type of peacekeeping that he is talking about there. Not that that's an illustration of what he is saying there, but that's the type of fruition, full circle reconciliation. And that's what needs to take place. For this was the mission of Jesus in Colossians 1, 19-20. For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Isaiah goes on to say this, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Jesus was speaking to those individuals who desired to be a light unto the world and who desired to see the world reconciled back to God. And in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice that he starts and ends with that same promise, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now first, let us be clear that Christians should be persecuted for righteousness' sakes, not because we're jerks. If we're being persecuted because we are jerks, then we need to reevaluate our interaction with those who do not know the Lord. But when we are persecuted for the righteousness in which we displayed and which we are seeing happening in our nation today, when we stand up for the life in the womb, when we stand up for traditional marriage between a husband and a wife, when we dare say that God made man and woman and not a multitude of various genders to be selected at will. And the world retaliates and persecutes us for it. That's being persecuted for righteousness. To say that something's sin, not because we're judging it based on our own standard of morality, but because we're simply declaring what the Bible has already stated, then it is sin and for us to say that doesn't mean that we're judging it doesn't mean that we are condemning we are simply proclaiming what the word already says and our world is turning quickly as everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes and evil has become good and good has become evil But let us understand that persecution is also the backdrop for an incredible opportunity to show love to those who hate us. Later on in chapter 5, we hear these words from our Savior. Let me read them to you. You have heard that it was said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. 
Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? But if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than any other? Do not even the tax collectors do so themselves. Therefore you shall be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. I don't know about you, but that challenges me in the day in which we live. I get so frustrated hearing from the mouths of people who are supposed to be educated such idiotic things. May I just say it that way? How they simply believe that the American people will simply be duped time and time again and that none of us have ever read a history book or that none of us really see what's happening before us. And they're taking advantage of us. And they're telling us that we need to pass a fair tax, a, a tax act because, of course, the same tax rate for everybody isn't fair. Right? Okay. Sounds good. Do you notice that he introduced that after they made marijuana legal? Do you ever notice that? Just, just saying. I mean, my goodness. Let's, let's be fair. We did this in the philosophy class and everybody was amazed. At first, everybody thought, well, they're all paying the same amount. So 5% of $1,200 and 5% of $100,000 is the same amount. You've got to go back to math. But it's hard not to get angry. I'm just being honest with you. It's hard not to get angry. And to see how people are being taken advantage of and lied to. And yet, if I love only you guys, what does it benefit me? Because the real demonstration of Christ's love is to those who are opposed to you. That's such an incredibly complex but simple, profound statement. And lastly, in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus said from the very beginning that they were going to hate us because they hated him. And yet, we have tried to do everything possible to eliminate that tension. Nobody wants it. Nobody's coveting it. I'm certainly not. But eventually, the, the incredible agitation that we see in our world today is going to be pinpointed to Christianity. It's only a matter of time. But here, Jesus says, rejoice. 
He says, be exceedingly glad when this occurs. Paul said that suffering for Jesus Christ, he saw as an honor because he knew then he was living truly for Christ in his writings. But let me close with this. Because what Jesus has done for us, he has put us in a very difficult position. He is now saying, That the kingdom of God is not going to be established like the nation of Israel. The kingdom of God, unlike Israel, is going to be established requiring an eternal perspective and not just simply a temporary one. For the only way that one will suffer at the hand of persecution is if they truly and honestly believe that great reward await for them in heaven, right? Only Jesus was willing to do what he did due to the fact that he knew where he was returning to. He knew who he was. He knew what true reality was. But if we as American Christians are are determined to continue to live in this perpetual idea of the immediate temporal, if we feel that our Christianity comes down to our identifying God's love by how we are blessed here and now, we are going to miss it all. We don't know what is going to happen after this election, after the new year. We have no idea what 2021 is going to be like. Some guy might bring dinosaurs back to an island and open a theme park for all we know. But nothing changes our relationship with God. But let us understand that God is always more concerned of our eternal step into glory than He is our temporal comforts here on this earth. And hearing the blessedness over and over and over again, you see that every single one of them encompasses and cradles an eternal perspective that I must embrace if I am truly going to live as God has asked me to live in and through the power of His Spirit. When Jesus asked his disciples to become witnesses, that word witness in the Greek is the same word that is used for a martyr. One who is willing to lay down their life on behalf of a greater purpose. And that's what God is asking us to do. If we are truly going to be participants in the kingdom of heaven here on earth, we must adopt an eternal perspective, which requires us to trust the Lord to have faith in His promises, to allow Him to move us as He leads and guides us, to be willing to say, not my will, but yours be done, to come to Him, as Paul writes, a living sacrifice, laying ourselves before Him and allowing Him to use us for His purposes and His glory. The kingdom of heaven is the most extraordinary aspect of Christianity. We cannot miss it. And blessed are those who do these things. For they will obtain the kingdom of heaven.